Hello and welcome to Hear Her Voice, a podcast celebrating the incredible range of artistry and talent of women in music. I'm Laura Whitmore and across the series I'm chatting to some very special guests as we enjoy the songs, albums and lyrics from some of the most iconic women in music through the decades and we have some great women. Today my theme is breakup and makeup. We're exploring songs about breaking up, losing love and often finding yourself in the process. Love is a losing game, sang Amy Winehouse. I mean she spoke so much truth about the broken heart. With my very special guest today, I'm celebrating the best breakup anthems of all time and the female artists who know what it's like to lose love. They, they own it and they sing about it straight from the heart. Breaking up, it can be bittersweet and sometimes even empowering. You can hear all of today's featured tracks and more on the Hear Her Voice Breakup and Makeup Spotify playlist. In this episode, I talk about harnessing the creativity that comes from endings with the legend that is Katie Tunstall. Songs are really weird. They can be like really weird fortune tellers where your subconscious creative brain is maybe a little better tuned in to your emotions than your conscious brain is. But my first guest is the multi-talented Daisy Buchanan. Daisy is an award-winning journalist, author and broadcaster. She has written for every major newspaper and magazine in the UK, from The Guardian to Grazia, writing the popular Dear Daisy column as their in-house agony aunt. She's a TEDx speaker giving advice on how to get through the trickiest parts of your 20s in her talk, How to Survive a Quarter-Life Crisis. She hosts the chart-topping podcast, You're Booked, and her books include How to Be a Grown-Up and Insatiable, a love story for greedy girls. Her latest book is called Careering. Oh, and she loves ABBA and baking banana bread. Who doesn't? Daisy tells me about Affairs of the Heart, the late great Amy Winehouse, and soundtracking our breakups. And somehow, she always manages to bring the chat back to Abba. Good woman. Daisy, welcome to Hear Her Voice. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited about this particular episode because I think this is something that so many of us will relate to. We're talking about soundtracking our love affairs. The best songs to make up or break up to. Uh, And as somebody who works on a show called Love Island, one of my favourite things is the music that's used in that show. Uh, But before we kick off, can we start by discussing what music you listen to kind of growing up? What's your kind of musical taste? Well, the band I loved the most when I was a kid was ABBA. I do not love ABBA, ironically. I just love them. And I feel as though I went through so many really, really intense, emotional, romantic relationships all by myself, just listening to ABBA in the car. How young were you listening to ABBA? Because I was introduced to ABBA very, very young, I remember, in the house. I would have been, I think, sort of six, seven or eight. I would have been like, I am an ABBA fan. And I have a really vivid memory of my dad playing me Voulez-vous and like Mm -hmm. on his like old ancient vinyl turntable that he still has. Not knowing what Voulez-vous even meant at that age, probably. (laughs) No, um... But really being fascinated by the lyrics and the stories that they were telling. And I think that's really why, you know, I'm a writer now. And it's because what I've learned about storytelling, I learned it all from ABBA. I mean, could you think of anyone better, really? And I think as well with ABBA, you had two two men and two women. It was very balanced. Um, the, the women definitely had the best vocals. Uh, and it's interesting because I was always obsessed with ABBA and they always were this like really fun, upbeat. But then I watched a few documentaries afterwards and you realise actually there's so much more stuff going on behind. It's so true. And they were almost like 
a sort of a TV show as well as a band because you knew they were couples as well yeah. and it was so tempting to project a narrative It was basically Love on. Island. Yes! <laughs> 1970s Love Island. And I think Agneta and Frida were every bit as well-dressed as the... Um, Love yeah. Island. Big time. And, and still have people. a huge influence today for, for so many artists coming up and fashion. I love a flare. I love a headband. It's all back now, isn't it? And I think especially, I mean, heaven knows, I don't really know what to call these times, but I think we are all we're feeling really emotional mm. and we're craving glitter and sequin and sparkle. So Actually, that's you're, why you're I was wearing, having... You're wearing both at the moment. You're, wearing, you're sparkling. That's, I just, that's the ABBA influence. It is. I'm wearing a jumper that makes me look a little bit like an ice skater. And that's, um, I'm not very coordinated, so that's <laughs> as far as I can go, <laughs> ice skating wise. Besides ABBA, were there any other, I guess you, you were about six when you were start listening to ABBA, which was quite young. When you kind of get to those teenage years, which I always think, you know, are the years when you feel every single emotion that exists. Maybe the, the first time you kind of really, well, for me, kind of knew what the opposite of sex uh, were and <laughs> um, do you have any particular artists that stand out around that time frame for you oh it was intense I got really really into Blondie mm. and Madonna I yes. was a bit of an indie kid mm. and I was a bit awkward when I was 12 and 13 and then I discovered the Immaculate Collection long after it was released and I just loved it all and I loved Madonna's confidence I loved that she was able to kind of ask what she wanted and express herself sexually literally um, she did seem quite heart on her sleeve, but also to be really having fun. And I think that perhaps because I'm think, you know, I'm I wouldn't say I'm melancholy. I'm pretty upbeat, but also I am so drawn to those like big, dark, dramatic mm. narratives. Mm. And I love that Madonna for showing that you could remain your own person in a relationship and mm. have fun with it. And I think that's what really stayed with me. But then, you know, I love that Debbie Harry as well, singing about being a woman and being in punk mm. and that she was and she could be. I mean, I don't think she's any kind of diva. I've read her memoir and I loved it. And I mm. think she's really playful. And she's mm -hmm. talked about how she played the character of Blondie, almost like drag. But mm. this idea of who you were as a woman and talking about how it felt to be in a relationship and be defined by that and then go on to challenge that. I found that really comforting. And it you know, really taught me a lot of good lessons that have helped me, I think, as an adult woman. You know, when it comes to having your first love, which is a powerful time for everyone, because I, I still think as you get older, nothing will ever compare to like that first crush you had or that first heartbreak. Did music feature in that time of your life? Oh, very much. And to be honest, I met my first boyfriend in the year 2000 mm -hmm. and the year 2000 was a challenging time <laughs> for music and the charts. And <laughs> I'm sure there are all kinds of really like powerful, beautiful music that I don't remember, but I mostly remember listening to quite a lot of Blink-182 yeah. and the Fragma, lots of those like sort of very... Um, Avril Lavigne, I felt, featured yes. a lot in my uh, first uh, my first relationship. <laughs> Complicated. I mean, it, relationships are complicated. She knew. And I feel like she has nailed teen angst like no one ever will. Yeah. Teenage Dirtbag by Weetus. That's a big <gasps> That's song. my karaoke song. Oh, yeah. it's, it's a great song. Love a bit of Noelle in there. But Her name is Noelle. I didn't kind of bring it to the relationship, but the music that made me make sense of how I was feeling and how intense everything was. And it was music I'd grown up listening to because my parents love her. And I really felt like she became my woman and my own. And I still love her with all my heart. Dusty Springfield was... <gasps> Where I can well, you're, you're a big fan of Dusty. I'm a big, big fan. And I think actually, you don't have to say you love me. It's one of my karaoke songs, depending on how confident I'm feeling, but I can't really do it justice. But just that intro and the shiver mm -hmm. and the horns, I think. And when you, the first, when, when I said I needed you, 
I was a big musical kid and it was losing my mind from follies and that line you said you loved me but were you just being kind and that was like all of my teenage insecurity and all of my 36 year old insecurity isn't it funny how a line in a song can sum up a whole feeling a whole relationship it's eerie isn't it and I think it also makes me realise how when I was younger I would do so much projecting and in my head this grand drama would be happening and then (laughs) my boyfriend would just be like you're what okay Right, um, I'm going to listen to Limp Bizkit. See you later. <laughs> well, I was going to say, is music quite cathartic? I have these albums. I remember going through a breakup and I would have these albums I'd listen to depending on what mood I was in. My friend actually made me a mixed CD called, like, Just Get Over It. And it had, like, Khaleesi, I Hate You So Much Right Now. A lot of Alanis Morissette was there, um, The Cranberries. And then I had this other album, which was not not a female voice, but it was Jeff uh, uh, Buckley, Grace. And I wasn't allowed to listen to that because that made me too emotional. But do you have those albums that if something happens that you, you kind of go to because it, it kind of uh, cathartic, I guess, is the word. Oh, my goodness. You know, talk about Alanis, that film Booksmart, mm. when they sing, you, you, you want to know. You wanna know. I was going to have to kind of know. sing the whole thing before I got there. perverted it, like me? Yeah. Just really, it was almost like in a nice way being punched in the face like, oh, I remember. I remember how healing that felt. And also I'm here to remind you about, of the mess you left when you went away. For sure. And when I was a teenage girl, feeling that the whole time I had to pretend not to care. And I was yeah. like, I know, I've got no emotions. I'm detached. I don't mind. I'm not bothered. And in my head and my heart, I was mm-hmm. screaming, Alanis. Uh, we have so much music to talk about, Daisy. We have this brilliant playlist. And I know you've picked some tracks from that. And I think the ultimate kind of getting over somebody, Gloria Gaynor's I Will Survive from 1978. Let's hear a little. Of course, the incredible vocals of Gloria Gaynor, I Will Survive. And you have chosen this. I mean, I already feel empowered just from listening to a few lines of that. What I love so much about this song is I feel to me it's a song about women coming Mm. together. Mm. You never feel more alone than after a breakup and you never really hear or dance to I Will Survive alone. It is you and your girls Mm -hmm. on the dance floor coming together going, I don't care, you're going to be fine he's out and I was thinking about that and I've not really considered this before but and so you're back from outer space I was thinking about how whenever I've had a bad breakup I've always been like I just want you to stop existing I want you to go and like live in a remote mountain in Tibet and think about what you did I have and no that, more like, social media that I can check on just just disappear just no just no possibility of any more romantic partners or anything just leave and that I must exile you into another universe I think that's such a clever lyric I think as well it's hugely relatable to so many people and the fact that the song actually was originally about career about leaving a job and now we've kind of taken it as this anthem and but I think it can be used to so many different parts of our lives but it kind of really has been taken to someone who's kind of gone through a big relationship or a big change mm. in their life and um, it received heavy airplay in 1979 spent three non-consecutive weeks at number one on the billboard hot 
100, as well as topping the UK singles chart and Irish singles chart as well. Get that in there. Very important chart. And this is lovely. This is just to show you just how ingrained it's become within our society. In 2016, the Library of Congress deemed Gaynor's original recording to be, and I quote, culturally, historically, or artistically significant, selected it for preservation in the National Recording Registry. And it is, it's there, it's timeless. Oh, well, it's one of those songs as well that I think just shows you about the power of performance. And obviously, you know, Gloria Gaynor's vocal is like technically amazing. You know, she's such a gifted singer. But there's more than that. It's not just that she sings it beautifully and resonantly, but mm-hmm. the anger and the power and that she takes something and, you know, we can see the lyrics and we know it's sort of strong on the page, but it's her performance of it that makes it so resonant for so many of us. And I love as well that... As you said, it's that the feeling of loneliness and this is the opposite because I don't think there's a person alive who doesn't hear, I will survive, you know, who doesn't know, oh yeah, I, I know exactly how that feels. I have been there. I've been there. And and um, I love as well, like so many people have, have grasped the song and done great things with it. It's become an LGBTQ plus anthem. And I just think it's going to continue on through generation, generation, a song that we, we pass down and maybe will evolve slightly the meaning of it, but that's the beauty of, of a great song that it stands the test of time it's so true like you know you'd play it at a wedding and everyone get on the floor no it's a great like, drunken song as well <laughs> no one would think oh no hold on we're celebrating love we can't have I will survive it's a celebration of yeah. people I think and of power and yeah. of growing certain songs that just stick with you I remember my other half said it was The Twist by Frightened Rabbit about a girl dancing on the dance floor and he said it just reminded him of me dancing on the dance floor and then every time he hears that it just always reminds me he's like we can never break up because I love that song (laughs) so I don't want that song to be ruined have you had a song maybe from a previous relationships where you really loved it but it just kind of brings you back to a certain memory or do you feel that you can kind of take ownership of a song or carry it through because songs are so powerful like they'll bring you back to a moment even a moment from 20 years ago oh my gosh completely and it took a while that I think my worst ever ever breakup it was one of those mm-hmm. relationships that I feel like a lot of people possibly have in their 20s where I feel like you have to have really to you, like nearly it's a rise of passage it's like the most drama and you go out and you break up and you get back together mm-hmm. again and you just cut and you're like oh we're, we're doomed lovers like, no you just need to leave each other yeah. well alone but that boyfriend was listening to a lot of Johnny Cash mm-hmm. and lots of the duets with June. Johnny and June. Yeah. And um, if I were a carpenter, especially, there were times when I couldn't handle hearing that. And I think I'm, I've got to a point now where I feel like I'm, I'm strong and I'm yeah, there. And you're, it's actually, you're married to someone else. You're like, now I feel I can listen to that song. And it was, but it was nice as well because I think when I was younger I thought like oh country and western it's a bit now you know yeah. and online dancing and I was a bit like no I'm too cool no one is too cool for country music I am the least cool person I know and it's just gorgeous and I love so much of it country you do well for breakup songs as well country music Dolly Parton mm. that would be the best way of like summing up songs and actually I think that's the great thing about music these days it, it transcends over so many different genres the Miley Cyrus the Taylor Swift kind of yeah. bring it into a more pop contemporary forum you forget I used to work on a teen mag and yeah. when I was doing that job like Taylor was country a little girl. bit country mm. and not all that rock and roll and mm. we sort of saw her transition but it was lovely because you know she's such a brilliant brilliant storyteller and lyricist yeah. and she speaks so eloquently about love and there's so much to unpack in those songs actually she knows if you want to find out about breakups she's the best person yes. around and and we've kind of come from the past when men were 
writing a lot about women and then you have Taylor come along as a songwriter and I guess really connects with a younger female audience and talking about breakups with John Mayer, Harry Styles, Jake Gyllenhaal. And I love it because we haven't really seen it enough from the female songwriting side. I mean, everything she does, Taylor is so keen to kind of, you know, have her power. Like, Mm. I think she has been really open about the way that, you know, women are made to feel like they can't speak out about love about work about Mm. anything that's happened to them because they're worried about you know what the consequences will be and taylor i don't know i wouldn't want to say that she's necessarily fearless because my guess would be that someone who sings and speaks with so much empathy and understanding has a lot of feelings including fear but she's so determined to Mm. tell her truth and Mm -hmm. i find that really inspiring Looking at our playlist again, there's another track we want to talk to. It's Amy Winehouse. The track we want to talk to now is Back to Black, and it was released in 2006. Let's have a listen. back to 2006 there with Amy Winehouse back to black and Daisy these lyrics are so strong I'm just going to read you some he left no time to regret kept his dick wet and what I love about it is just even as the language used from a female be like oh you can't say that in a song (laughs) as a female artist I feel if anyone can write with such passion such authenticity it was Amy As a writer, if I could write anything a millionth as good as the first verse of Back to Black, Mm -hmm. I would be very happy. It's just so, so concise. And that the rhythm of like with his same old safe bet, the musicality of the lyrics, even, you know, aside from the tune. And you still learn more, actually, the more you look at it. When I was looking at this again, I was like, oh, God, I'm, I'm finding things that I didn't find in it before. Oh, absolutely. This whole album, to be honest, soundtracked the very bad breakup. And there are songs as well on her first album, Frank, that, you know, will just stay with me and I get something new every time. But yeah, I think talking about, you know, telling the truth and being honest and feeling. And this is a woman who's writing with all the skin in the game and no skin on her body. With those flashes as well that she changes and that line... I died a hundred times and it's so sort of flip and throw away but you know I get it and that like I'll be fine no I won't I'll be fine no I won't it's just extraordinary her words had power but she was just vulnerable and it's okay as you say it's, it's okay to be vulnerable we, we were talking about lots of different women who seem really strong and what they write about but it's okay to have that vulnerability we just have to protect it mm. this particular song we're talking about now Back to Black it was very obvious at the time she'd gone through a very public breakup with Blake Fielder Civil and she was always very honest and you're right like everything was in the lyrics the music was so popular and so beloved because you know just like well I will survive you know we have all felt these things she was such an incredible 
you know, multi-talented person, but, you know, the sort of magical She's unicorn. How does this woman do so much? I think it's, and, you know, there's so many television shows to try and find or create or make mm. a superstar. Well, we just had this woman who just naturally oozed it. Like, she just walked down the street and you could see, like, you'd see her from, you know, a few streets down. You'd be aware of her because she just exuded this and people just wanted to watch her and stare at her and look at her. You know, this is around 2006, time 2007. It was roughly when I had first moved to London. But she had that soul that mm. kind of, you know, reminded us of those girl groups from the 1960s and and that. And yeah, you're right. She was this old soul, wasn't it? Even though she was in this kind of young, gorgeous woman that could be, you know, I guess a pinup in some ways. Mm. But she had this soul from the 60s. And we hadn't really seen that. Amy was real and raw in all the brilliant ways that modern women are. She was quite frankly a legend. So I want to dig a little deeper into her incredible talent from our resident music expert, Laura Snapes. Over to you, Laura. Thanks, Laura. When I think about the 21st century, I just don't think anybody has sung about heartbreak in the way that Amy Winehouse did. She was so salty and needy and bodily and funny and even desperate. She looked at her broken heart like it was some sort of rough, bloody diamond, and she wanted to honour every single facet of it. I love how she wrote about hope, but also about betrayal, and about desire, but also what it felt like to share a bed with somebody that you just didn't feel anything for anymore, and about what it was like to hold all the power in a relationship, but also to have no power at all. And because all that seemed to come so naturally to her, and she expressed it so physically in that famous bruised voice, I think sometimes it's easy to see Amy as just an artist who ran on instinct. But actually, she really prided herself on her writing, and rightly so. She writes about the dynamic of a relationship with the same sort of flair that an author would, and she knows exactly which brutal details are the ones that are going to set a scene. And that's why we reach for her songs in our own moments of heartbreak. I think their titles have even become a sort of emotional signposting all of their own. On the British band Wolf Alice's album Blue Weekend, singer and guitarist Ellie Rousel references Amy on the song No Hard Feelings. She sings, It's not hard to remember when it was tough to hear your name. Crying in the bathtub to love is a losing game. It's so relatable, you can immediately picture this scene. Her streaked mascara, the empty wine bottle wedged between the taps, Amy Winehouse's bittersweet, sultry voice echoing off the bathroom tiles. Amy's cinematic lens was at its widest on her debut album, Frank, which was released in 2003. And what is so brilliant about this record is how she both questions traditional gender roles, but she craves them too. And that's provocative in itself for a 21st century woman who should really be all over that. She tells a weak lover that he's the one who's supposed to be the man and stroke her hair, not the other way around. But she also fantasises about what it would be like for a woman to cheat with the nonchalance that a man would and pities an ex with benefits who can't separate sex from emotion in the way that she can. Meanwhile, she sings with such fantastic bluntness. The only time I hold your hand is to get the angle right. That line teases the dark humour that would colour Amy's second and final album. And for me, that quality is what makes her feel so alive more than a decade after her passing. On Back to Black, which was released in 2007, her lens has narrowed. It's closing in on her like a collapsing tunnel. And she sketches these absolutely heavenly scenes, which then suddenly crumble to ash. On You Know I'm No Good, she and her lover are flirting in the bathroom. He's on the Lucy, she's in the bath. Then he notices the carpet burn on her legs. And she knows that he knows how it got there. Worse than that, though, he just shrugs. He's not bothered by her infidelity. 
I think the reason that the pulse of Back to Black still beats so dramatically is because it isn't a portrait of resilience, but a realistic depiction of what it means to be so crushed by heartbreak that almost all its writer can do to survive is to romanticise it, to make beauty out of her inevitable defeat. In writing, at least, the story belonged to Amy alone. Maybe it offered her a chance to reconcile her warring impulses and desires. Maybe it also offered her peace. As she sang on the song You Sent Me Flying, maybe if I get this down, I'll get it off my mind. We, we have to stick with Amy because there's so many, God, there's so many songs that we can listen to, but also from the playlist and also from Back to Black is an incredible song, Love is a Losing Game. Let's just have a little listen. imagery that she evokes in her writing for you I was a flame love is a losing game fire story fire as you came love is a losing game wow I think I've only just realised this is a thematic development of The Winner Takes It All by ABBA everything comes back to ABBA everything comes back to ABBA Daisy you know that's that imagery and that the ache in her voice as well and you know lyrically this is just so devastating and I think that it's interesting listening to it after listening to Back to Black where she sounds so gorgeously brilliantly angry and chaotic and lost and what's almost worse about this is she just sounds so resigned to to the breakup and the end that love is a losing game one I wish I never played that's the opposite of better to have loved and lost it's heartbreaking there's something simplistic in the lyrics but there's something so complicated and and that you can spend probably god like actually forever trying to kind of pick what she's trying to say and things because there's so many oh. different angles to it. Well, that memory is more my mind and I just think of the number of breakups I've had. It makes it sound like I've had a lot of breakups <laughs> that have a normal amount. But, you know, when you've loved someone so much and you've been sure that they loved you and now your feelings have changed and their feelings have changed and I've had those times where I'm like, well, did that really happen? I don't know how to process all of these, what I thought were happy memories. Like, was he lying? Was I lying? What was going on in that moment? And that's another thing I think, you know, going back to, you know, what we learned about growing up and realising feelings might be the least permanent thing of all. But yeah, it's so, I think the worst thing about a breakup isn't just not having that person and not planning a future with them, but mourning and grieving everything you loved about being with them in the past. Mm. And you do think, well, what were those months and years? Uh, you say there like feelings can be so changeable and that one thing that you've talked about before time like time kind of helps everything and you know you can there's certain relationships I thought like I'm never gonna get over this that life is over and then you do you get over and it gets better but isn't it strange how because I remember kind of a breakup around this time 2006 and when you listen to the song it can take you back like time heals but it can take you back and you have that little twinge of emotion there's another song on this album called Wake Up Alone. Mm-hmm. 
And that, I just remember listening to that on the way to work when I knew we'd not fully broken up, mm-hmm. but I knew it was happening. And just like walking down the road, like crying, walking up these big hills, crying, like wind. People passing you, you by know- going, she's listening to Amy Winehouse. <laughs> <laughs> it was better out than in. And yeah, as you said, it was that the healing and the pain and like yeah. the real like letting something out. But I still hear that now and it wins me. Oh my God. And um, on Frank in my bed, the breakup sex song. <gasps> Amy has never been more knowing than she has there. I hope she is remembered as, you know, one of our best songwriters. Daisy, thank you so much for joining me on Hear Her Voice. Thank you. My next guest, the Arvin Novella winning multi-million selling Grammy and Mercury nominated artist Katie Tunstall grew up in Fife, Scotland. She spent time touring with various indie bands until the age of 29 when her music career was given a rocket powered boost with her debut album, Eye to the Telescope. Released in 2004, it was inspired by her childhood experiences at her father's physics laboratory in St. Andrews. Reaching number three in the UK albums chart, much of its early popularity in the UK stemmed from Katie's live solo performance of Black Horse and the Cherry Tree on Later with Jules Holland in 2004. I mean, what a performance. The single Black Horse and the Cherry Tree was given the Q Magazine Award for Best Track in 2005 and Suddenly I See won the Ivor Novella Award for Best Song in 2006. Katie won the Brit Award for Best British Female Artist in 2006 and her second album Drastic Fantastic released in 2007 hit top 10 on both sides of the Atlantic. Katie released six albums internationally and has written soundtracks for several films. But while Katie's career hit major highs, her world was rocked to its foundations in 2012 when she went through a divorce and the loss of her father, which triggered a life-changing relocation to L.A. I spoke to Katie about early success, her creative process, breakup songs and using music to process the deepest of emotions. Katie, welcome to hear her voice. How are you? I am unusually stressed today. I'm on tour, in the middle of a tour on the East Coast, Mm. been juggling many, many balls in the air while I've been sitting in a van (laughs) and I've just got to my hotel room late and I'm now in and I'm very glad that I'm sitting down and just now having a chat. The glamorous life of being a musician. um, Yeah, well, quite. Being in a van for the majority of your time. There's so many times where I wish I could just take someone with me on tour for a week just so that they could have a little flavour of it. (laughs) I kind of want to take you back. to to growing up and your first memories of music and what you were listening to. Do you remember the first time you kind of heard a song and you thought, wow? Yeah, I do. My mum and dad, like weirdly, weren't that mad for music. They didn't really listen to music that much. And my dad had a little box full of cassette tapes that he listened to. It was maybe like 10 cassette tapes Mm. that he would listen to. And it was Tom Lehrer, who's like Mm -hmm. a weird... Harvard mathematician, satirist, comedian, musician, who's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Billy Holiday, Mozart, and the Chariots of Fire soundtrack, which wow. I, I have to say, I still go to that like for Vangelis like reference when I'm making records. I absolutely love that. Mm-hmm. But I think probably the first female voice I loved was maybe Kim Wilde. Mm, yeah, I remember watching Top of the Pops and, there were, you know, there's all, all these kind of boy pop bands and there was a lot of like, you know, Madonna and Whitney mm-hmm. Houston. But I don't know. I just I, I really like Kim mm. Wilde and just mm-hmm. love the kind of irreverence. And and then when I started singing for myself in my kind of mid-teens, it was really Ella Fitzgerald that I was listening to. I kind of always considered her my singing teacher, actually. So was music always part of your life? So music for me as a youngster was much more about playing 
than it was about listening. My nursery school teacher remembers me just wanting to pick up all the musical instruments in the room. And I remember my my music teacher when I started primary school. I started quite young when I was just turned four. And she played the piano and I was just like, I need a piano. So I just like went home and begged my mum and dad for a piano when I was four years old. And they very yeah. kindly got me a secondhand piano and I just took to it like a duck to water. It was just really... Yeah, so it was really all about playing and expressing. And yeah. I just have always loved making something where there was nothing. Where it was quiet, you've made a noise that sounds great, you know. Uh, and what made you want to make these noises sound great, you know, professionally? I was just, there was no drive to be famous or particularly rich even. It was just not having to do a job. Mm. I didn't want to do a job. I just wanted to make music and I was living like in little cottages with no heating on the outskirts of town for most of my 20s. Um, and I really tried to do it independently. I didn't want a record deal. I wanted to do it myself and I held on as long as I could. Totally pre-internet. So how did you do it? I was sending, getting people's mailing addresses and posting them postcards about gigs. It was crazy. In the end, I was like, I'm, I'm more mainstream than my mates. Yeah. up here they're doing kind of slightly weirder more alternative music and if I want this to happen I'm I'm gonna have to go to London and that's what I did yeah. yeah it just all started to take off so it was a long time getting there and then it just you know as you know it just kind of exploded you said that your big break came from going on Jules Holland's show mm. can you tell us about what happened so I'd made the record Black Horse and the Cherry Tree was a brand new song that I'd written after I'd finished the album. And there's me going, hey, I've got single one for album two in the bag already. And we didn't have a recording of the song. And I told my label after finishing the record that I wanted to go on tour with my mate from Orkney, who's got a punk folk band for two weeks and just go on tour and kind of have a last blast, you know, as an anonymous band member in a band before this big push for me to be a solo artist. And my label went, you know, you really shouldn't do that. We've just made a record. And I was like, nothing's going to happen. Yeah. And then halfway through this tour, I get a phone call from my label going, uh, you need to come back to London because you've got a spot on Jules Holland. And of yeah. course, it's like the Holy Grail, right? You're just completely blown away. And as it had turned out, Nas had a single out that his dad was playing trumpet on, but his dad was ill. So he'd pulled out of the show with 24 hours notice and they decided to fill the spot with a newbie. You know, they sometimes have a brand new person and I was given the spot and I had to jump on a train, get down to London, have a shower. I grabbed the weirdest outfit I've ever worn for a gig. I was wearing yeah. the cut off sleeves of a mohair jumper on my legs. Really? I just was panicking. I don't know what I was thinking. And I went on there and it was Anita Baker, Jackson Brown, The Cure, Embrace and me. And it was just nuts. And I and I won the on, online poll for favourite act of the night. It was just totally bananas. And it was that performance on Jules Holland that literally changed my life overnight. I want to go to the song Suddenly I See from Eye to the Telescope and kind of break down that because there's something really powerful. Suddenly I see this is what I want to be, which seems like such a literal sentence in one way. But for so many of us, we don't see ourselves. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. Talk to me about the process of writing this song. And, and also, did you realise how big a hit it was going to be? So last question first. Absolutely yeah. not. I had <laughs> absolutely no idea that this thing was just going to turn into a beast that would, you know, I mean, that song is way more famous than I am. It's really hard to talk to you about this song without singing in my head. Like I'm singing it in my head and it won't stop. It was just one of those magic moments and it was a crazy experience that song so I wrote it about two in the morning in my flat in Gospel Oak in London and I was the record hadn't obviously hadn't come out yet I was still sort of trying to get somewhere with it and I'd got my record deal but I was still writing for the record and um the whole song is about the picture of Patti Smith on the cover of Horses so I was just sitting looking at the CD and uh it was the ro- famous Robert Mapplethorpe photograph of her and she's just she's just staring very calmly at you and and I think that that's an amazing thing with photographs and photographers is that sometimes you look at a photo and you can see that the person getting their photo taken is just looking at the camera Mm. and then a photo like that you're like the person is looking at the person behind the camera because Mm -hmm. they've got a connection Mm -hmm. and um I just felt like she was really kind of challenging me in that stare just saying well who are you this is who I am Mm. and I was looking back going I don't know who I am yet but I know what I want to be and I want to be like you and I think the thing that really kind of pissed me off about it was I just, you know, I, I got, I didn't get my record deal till I was 29 mm. and I just spent a decade of trying to get somewhere and I'd just been trying and trying and trying. And I looked at this woman and she just doesn't look like she's trying at all. She's just being, you know. It's so interesting. You're right though, because I guess if you love doing something, you want to do it. Doing is the fun You're just doing it. it. Exactly. That's it. That's yeah, the fun exactly. Bit. Isn't it funny just how a picture, one image can create this whole other world and someone else will listen to that song and it'll be something completely different I know it's really powerful 16 years after releasing that record I'm headlining Times Square in New York on New Year's Eve and it's kind of really because of this song because that song was so huge and I'm like how have I from Fife managed to get the Mariah Carey spot in Times Square it's just it's really crazy and and awesome and and very fun. Um, I want to I want to bring it to 2012, which I know is a, a hugely significant year for you. Yeah. Um, I mean, so much going on: the loss of your father, a divorce, and subsequently you relocated to Venice Beach in California. Can you talk us through through that year uh, and just I suppose your your mindset and yeah and, and and your decision to kind of do what you did? I had basically found myself living in a big rock and roll house with another big rock and roll house in the country, with uh, enormous success under my belt, married and totally miserable. And I was just like, what the hell has happened here? And, uh, you know, end of the day, I'd, I'd married the wrong person and I'd, I'd followed the wrong path. And my wish to, to be a musician and, and have that life was one of real unconventionality. 
I wanted a bohemian life. I wanted a creative, unexpected life. And somehow I'd managed to end up in what felt like a nine to five Mm -hmm. where I was just doing the same thing all the time. I was just on tour and it was just really repetitive. And my dad passed away. He had Parkinson's, but he, he ended up passing away a bit unexpectedly. And, uh, it was just a total epiphany. I just had never seen a dead body. I went to visit him in the funeral home. It was the most positive experience I can imagine of losing a parent because we'd said all we needed to say. There was a lot of love. He was sick and, you know, it was his time. But it was uh, somewhat of a gift for me because I just felt like I woke up. It was honestly, it was like the Matrix, Laura. Mm-hmm. It was just like I just woke up in the slime and unplugged the tube and just went, oh my God, I've got this all wrong. Mm-hmm. And it's just, I think losing my dad, you're just like, right, you've got one go at this mm-hmm. and it's going to end. Mm. And I was like, I've not got all the time in the world and I've got to get this right. And so it was literally like 48 hours after my dad had, after my dad's funeral, I was just like, I am in the wrong relationship and this is not my, this should not be where I'm spending my life. And so I, I split up with my ex, went through a pretty horrible divorce and sold everything I owned and moved continents. <gasps> one of the one of the bravest things you do, actually, one of the hardest things to do is sometimes to say you're unhappy or you're not okay. Yeah, and I, and I feel agreed. I think now we're maybe getting a little bit better where we're talking about mental health. Sometimes for the outside, if it looks good from the outside, we think it's all good. We you know we keep up yeah. the pretense. Well, no, I think you're totally right. I think step you're totally away right. from something though. It, it, it's yeah. difficult, but it's the bravest thing that you can do. It's all, and it's almost like my, by the time you break up with someone, the works. Yeah almost done you know it's like of course there's going to be heartbreak but you've gone through an awful lot of strain and stress and you know pain before Mm. you come to that decision especially if it's a long relationship well well let's i want to go then jim forward to the album invisible empire present moon so 2013 there's a lot of things going on there's a lot of things that you can write about when you went to sit down to do this album or is this was this music kind of been happening the whole time leading up to this how is this album put together so i'd put it in two different titles so it's like it's like an a and a b and you know it was all done to tape machine live to tape so it was a very it was a kind of a record made for vinyl you know and um, the first half was written before my dad died and the second half was written afterwards and after my my marriage broke up it was a really good exercise in reminding myself that it's a wonderful thing about being able to make things and be creative and art music whatever it is that you know you are literally polishing a turd like you're (laughs) you're taking a really unpleasant difficult painful sometimes traumatic experience in your life and actually actually making something mm-hmm. positive even if it's a sad song a sad song can be an enormously positive thing in the world and so i took a lot of solace in that that at least i was at least i was making something good from the pain of it yeah songs are really weird they can be like really weird fortune tellers where your subconscious creative brain is maybe a little better tuned in to your emotions than mm-hmm. your conscious brain is and mm-hmm. you you can have these really weird experiences where you feel like you're like fortune telling with songs yeah. it's really odd can you tell us about the song Carried, which is also on your album Invisible Empire Crescent Moon which was one of those fortune teller kind of songs it was a song about the final journey that your body makes after you die. It's like, you know, everybody's sort of got these ideas of where they want to be buried, what they want the funeral to be like, where, you know, and who's going to do that for you? Who, 
who do you trust is going to get your person to that place and and mm. do what you wish because it's very unlikely that you're going to drop down dead where you want to be buried you're going to have to get there and um it was just this 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 story about that that final journey and uh literally a month after recording that song i yeah. found myself walking through bath with my dad's cremated remains in a backpack on my back and yeah. looking around at people just going nobody knows that i've got my dad in my bag like what it was just such a weird experience and kind of like beyond anything i'd experienced and my dad was a physicist and very into sort of we're made of space dust and we return to space dust and so it was sort of very poetic the whole thing but it really felt spooky that I'd written this song called Carried and then I literally have my dad on my back. So Katie, we are talking today uh, on an episode about breakup. So I wondered, can you tell us about some other breakup songs you've written over the years? One of my favourite breakup songs that I've written was on my debut album, Eye to the Telescope, and it's the last track on the record, I believe, and it's called Through the Dark. And it's a rare piano track from me. And um, I love this song because I remember thinking at the time that there was basically too many breakup songs in the world and that, you know, who needs another breakup song? And so I thought, how do I, how do I write a song that's going to somehow be different, a different offering to the catalogue of heartbreak in the world. And I basically thought of writing a song where it it was just a really positive breakup song where you're really glad you're not with someone anymore. But, you know, as with the kind of snake shedding the skin, it's like you're always going to feel some loss, you know. Dog, is it? Is, are you agreeing? I think that's a yes. That's definitely a yes. But yeah, so it was really saying, I'm making the decision to walk away. I know it's good for me. But at the same time, I have no idea what I'm doing. I have no idea what's in front of me. I have no idea how it's going to feel. And it's just walking into that emptiness. It's really brave to take that step into the unknown when it can seem easier sometimes to stick with something familiar, even if it uh, doesn't feel quite right. You know, one thing that I find interesting about breakups is I've I've experienced it myself where it's just like it's almost harder to enter into unfamiliarity than it is mm. to just stay in pain. That sometimes it feels easier just to put up with what you know rather than deal with the total unknown of leaving this familiar situation as bad as it might be. But I always just manage to sort of take a lot of joy in singing that song because sometimes you have just got to raise a glass to your past and walk off. You know, there's always going to be, like I said, there's always going to be pain. But I've got another, I've got another song, which is actually a a friendship breakup song from my second record, Drastic Fantastic. It's called called I Don't Want You Now. And it was sort of a bit of a riff on Teenage Kicks. I wanted it to sound like a proper punk song. And... um, it was just a proper like middle finger song of no holds barred. You suck. I don't want you in my life anymore. <laughs> Love it. And it's very liberating. It's lovely. It's like a spa treatment. So, Katie, why do you think uh, there are so many breakup songs around? 
you know, breakup songs are so integral to music and we've all got the kind of catalogue of breakup songs. The the most powerful one for me is I Don't Want to Wait in Vain by Bob Marley because my, my one of my first boyfriends gave me a mixtape with that on. And really sadly, a few years later after we'd split up, it was I was still in my teens, he took mm-hmm. his own life. Mm-hmm. And um, that always just gets me a lump in my throat every mm-hmm. time I hear that song come on. But I think, you know, breakup songs are just... Maybe the most powerful songs there are. Yeah. yeah. And also, I guess it's so relatable. To, you know, a song is written, like you as a, as a songwriter, you'll write a song about a very specific experience yeah. for you and then you'll put it out there and it'll be, you know, so many people will grasp onto it and remind them of something else. What is that about music? Because you don't even really have ownership of that song anymore. I actually really like that transaction. I really yeah. enjoy mm. that moment. Well, there's this sort of deliciousness when you've first written a song mm. and then the moment comes where you give it to the world and it's just kind of like letting a bird out of a cage. It's just like you don't own it. It's not yours anymore. It's not up to you where it goes or mm-hmm. who it decides yeah. to roost with, you know. Mm-hmm. It's just going to go. And actually, it's a really fascinating part of the process. And you always keep your own little private cubbyhole with that mm-hmm. song of what mm-hmm. it meant. And weirdly, with some songs, sometimes they do change their meaning over time. And mm-hmm. I've had the experience where I've written a song and I thought I was writing about one thing. Mm-hmm. And then a couple of years later, I've been like, oh, my God, I was writing about something so much bigger and deeper that I was kind of not really consciously aware of that was bubbling under the surface. Before I let you go, I have to ask you, hail the queen, I ask everyone, who is the greatest female musician of all time and why? You kill me, Laura Whitmore. I'm sorry. um, Nobody nobody likes this question, so I ask it at the end. I'm going to say Chrissy Hind because... It's just the, you know, she's sort of like my David Bowie. Yeah. Where it's just writing, image, Mm -hmm. attitude, Mm -hmm. performance, vocal quality, just tenacity. It's just, she ticks every single box and she's just been such an amazing inspiration to me. And I was lucky enough to go on tour with Pretenders. And she was amazing. She was shouting me out every night and I was nearly puking from just (laughs) it being so overwhelming. And she, uh, she's one night from stage, she said, you got to check out Katie Tunstall. She really inspires me. And I was like, what are oh you my God, I die. About? I was like, wow. what are you talking about, Chrissy Hines? And I went and found her afterwards. I was like, what do you mean I inspire you? You are Chrissy Hind. Mm-hmm. She was like, I don't know. You're just so fucking friendly. <laughs> I love her. I love it. Well, yeah. Katie, I could chat to you all day. Thank you so I much. I know, me too. Time. Thank you Thank so you much. Thank you so much. That's all for today. Thank you so much for joining me on Hear Her Voice. Remember, you can hear all the songs featured in this episode at the Hear Her Voice Breakup and Makeup playlist on Spotify. And if you like what you've heard and want to hear more, please do like and subscribe to the Hear Her Voice podcast to make sure you don't miss an episode. Next time on Hear Her Voice, I'll be talking about music as a voice for change with my very special guests, Jam Supernova and Yola. Until next time.